Okay, so for those of you that are tracking with us, we're in the midst of a series called Managing Your Emotions. Um, Last Sunday, Daryl walked us through and discussed um, depression. Anybody here for that online? I don't know if you watched it. So he talked about depression. Um, And I mean, if you don't know, not only is depression on the rise, I think this year specifically, um, even my friends that are in counseling and they're therapists, and this is what they do as a profession, they've just said more and more, like their uh, client list is increasing because of people having to deal with depression. So it's, I, I wanna say to you this morning that um, all things are common amongst the brethren, that you're not alone if you're struggling with these things. This is why as a church we discuss it and we look to the word of God. Um, and so this week, interestingly enough, um, we're actually talking about grief and sorrow. And I think what's interesting is the fact that we talked about depression last week, and that if you study grief and sorrow, and this is actually not what we're talking about today, but I just want to touch upon, um, most of us are probably familiar with the five stages of grief, right? Um, If you're not, just to give you like a really fast recap, um, it's denial, you know, that state of like shock where you just can't register with what's happening and it's not real. Um, Anger, uh, the place where we want to accuse others, accuse God, you know, the place of accusation. Uh, bargaining, the place of like asking God or uh, whoever it is that we may want to blame to almost like cut us a deal and give us a different outcome. Depression is actually, can be a, a fruit of grief and a process of our grieving process is depression. And then finally, acceptance. And you know, I do wanna say that those are common for all people, but we might process them differently in a different order, take different time for different steps. Um, But depression is a really, is a very real part of a grieving process. And so what's interesting is we're gonna talk about grief today because one of the things that I realize is that some of us that are dealing with chronic depression It can actually be grief that has not been fully processed and fully healed. And hear me, grieving is a process, like meaning it doesn't happen overnight. Um, You know, I can have certain things. um, It's it's interesting how this works. One one of my closest friends when I was a teenager, and I'll just share it briefly. um, My, if you don't know me, the height of my rebellion in wandering from the Lord (laughs) was from like seventh to ninth grade. Like that was my... I did it, like I wore mini skirts, and I think I cussed a few times. (laughs) But in my heart, I was far from the Lord, and I was questioning and wandering and, you know, giving my parents all the lines of like, I don't know if the faith that you follow is the faith I'm gonna follow. You know, that was my, "Mm, stick it to you, mom. (laughs) Um, But anyway, in the midst of that, there was a woman in the church. She had sons my age who I was friends with, but she had no daughters, so she really just befriended me took me under her wing, we became very close, I became like a daughter to her, but like through my turbulent years where I couldn't really cling to my mom and I was trying to rebel against my mom, she really became a safe harbor for me and just being able to process and things like that, but she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer, she was healed one time, diagnosed the second time, and ended up dying of cancer, and so For me, I was actually very newly saved. Like I began following and seeking Jesus in the ninth grade and that was about the time that she was diagnosed the second time and I'll never forget my words to God. This is so, sorry, I'll let you in on my inner dialogue. (laughs) 
My words to God were, if you kill Linda, I will never follow a God like you. That was my threat. Like, you better not, because if you do, I'm turning my back and I'm walking out. (laughs) I'm not signing up for this. That was my threat to him. Well, then, lo and behold, before my sophomore year, I was at Beth Israel Hospital, actually there to visit her, and it was the day she passed away. And as a young teenager who was very new in the faith, very new in following, I can tell you the weight and the, the, the sorrow and the grief and the challenge and the difficulty of that was so weighty for so many years. But you know what was crazy about grief is that sometimes when you come across like an old picture or an old memory or even just a dream about someone or remembrance, you can almost again feel that same place of sorrow and sadness. And so grief is just such a complex <laughs> uh, set of processing. And so I want to I highlight today that the place of depression that oftentimes if we're not rightly processing, meaning working through grief, if we end up kind of living in that place and, and kind of abiding in that place, depression can be the fruit of that. Um, so I'm going to give us a very simple definition of grief because some of you, I just talked about losing a very dear friend at a young age, right? And so that's one aspect of grief. But grief is actually pretty broad if you think about it. Um, Grief is basically when we mourn the loss of what was or what should have been or could have been, right? So sometimes it's not just the death of a loved one. Sometimes it's not just the death of a, a sibling or a parent or a child. Sometimes grief can look like many things. Grief can look like when you're living with chronic sickness, the grief and the sorrow of what should have been and having to let go and live in the loss of what you feel like you've lost. Grief can look like a divorce, that ultimately you're grieving the death of a relationship. Grief can uh, come to us when we're suffering just even a betrayal. I mean, there's so many, grief, you can experience grief if you've had a house fire. It's, it's that place of something that you thought was permanent or something that you had some semblance of um, confidence in it being there, your home, that's the, where you've made memories, where you have happy memories, and then a house fire, there's, there's a weight of grief in the loss of something. And so all of us here today, to some measure, We've experienced grief. Even if it hasn't been a loved one that's dear to you, there's, there's something that you've had an expectation of it would be this way and it was going to be good. <laughs> and then this is how it turned out, which is a loss, which there's sadness and disappointment, and we have to work through the disappointment. I'm going to say to you this morning, one of the most common places when I minister to women is even just grief over the expectation of what their life was supposed to be. It may not even be like a tangible thing that you could, it's just, it's just not what I, whether it's marriage or motherhood, come on, can I, can I get an amen? Those of us that are mothers, we're like, we thought we were going to frolic through fields and all love each other and kiss. And then all of a sudden you're like, this kid hates me. And I don't know if I can, (laughs) you know, the reality of hardship is when we experience Grief is in the place of this is what I thought it should be or I thought it could be or what it was and it is not. 
And so that's actually what we want to talk about today is the many different like layers of grief, but also what the Bible has to say about it. So grief is not always when there's the finality of death. It's just that when we're suffering the loss of something. Um, for those of you that don't know my husband and I very well, if you're, you're new here, our son had four years of battling Lyme's disease from the time he was four until the time he was eight. And he, let me, let, let's just acknowledge, I did not lose my child during those four years. He was still alive. He was still living, breathing. He was still my son. But there were places of loss where his sickness was robbing him of energy. It was robbing him of confidence. His personality, we, we over and over would begin to say, and he would actually say, Abram would actually say to me when we pray for him, when is strong Abram coming back? It's the remembrance of what was and the grieving of the fact that that's no longer what we have and the grieving process of this is where we're living. So um, I would highly recommend for everybody to read C.S. Lewis has a book called A Grief Observed. And this is what he says. It says, we come to grips with the reality that there is no going back to normal. Meaning that's what grief is. It's the we're not going back to that, and my normal is no longer there. It's something, now we have something new. So it's coming to grips with the reality that there is no going back to normal. Rather, there is only a new normal. This does not mean that pain is over. If anything, it might mean the most profound pain begins. C.S. Lewis also compares death to an amputation. It's the loss of a loved one is like the loss of a limb. It's now learning how to live without something that you've been dependent on and accustomed to. So I just want to start before we kind of get into the meat of the message today. And I want us to look and establish biblically a couple of things. First and foremost, we find in Hebrews 4.15, it says of Jesus that he is acquainted with our infirmities, which literally means our, our lack of strength and our weakness. But in Isaiah 53.3, it says, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Can you just take a minute to process the fact that when you are working through grief, the loss of something, the pain of something, that you can sit and, and meditate on the fact that Jesus is acquainted with your grief. That he does not stand afar off, that he does not stand callous and not understand, but he stands as one that is compassionate, that has experienced your same grief and your same, same sorrow. And so first and foremost, as believers, we should never categorize that as believers, we should not suffer from grief or that somehow we're supposed to be above it, or so heavenly-minded that these things just don't affect us. And, and oftentimes the reason that uh, believers are the most emotionally dysfunctional is because they're forever trying to tell themselves how they're supposed to feel, how they're supposed to act, what is the right way to, and if I was truly saved, or if I truly, all of those things, instead of just sitting in the place of, this is where I'm at, and Jesus accepts me right here. If we could move to just another level of honesty of where we're at, like what we actually feel, instead of, well, I'm not supposed to be angry, well, I'm not supposed to be sad, well, I'm not supposed to be, or you know, telling ourselves all of these things as opposed to, this is where I am at, and Jesus wants to meet me in my grief. 
So Isaiah chapter 53, verse three is, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This word grief here literally means he is acquainted with our affliction and our sadness. So if you've ever read your Bible, (laughs) you will become acquainted with the fact that there are so many throughout the word of God that are acquainted with grief. That story after story after story are people that had to wrestle through extreme loss and grief. And just because they were the Jewish people, the chosen people, just because they claimed the name of Jesus did not make them exempt from a life of difficulty and challenge. How many of you guys are familiar? I would highly recommend that you read the book of Job. Oh, talk about grief. (laughs) In one day, the dude loses his 10 children, yikes, like not just one, 10. He loses all of his livestock, which is his wealth. So he loses all of his children, all of his wealth, and all of his servants in one day. That's a lot of loss to process, right? And mind you, for those of you that are not familiar with the book of Job, it starts out speaking about the fact that he was blameless and he was righteous in the sight of God. And so the book of Job is this wrestling of what is justice and is God just? And because if he's just, if I'm a good person, shouldn't good things happen to me? And why are bad things happening to me? And why does God, it's the, it's the wrestling of the human heart. And what we find in the book of Job is not only does he lose all of his children, <laughs> all of his livestock, all of his servants, He then gets afflicted with boils on his body. Has anybody ever had one boil? (laughs) Just one boil do you in and make you want to die. Your whole body covered in boils. And not only that, then his friends are accusing him. Well, you must have done this or you must have done this. And this is why this happens to people like you. You know, all, and they're wrong. They're utterly wrong. In the end of the book, um, God even comes and justifies Job saying, your friends are utterly wrong. They don't understand what is just. You and your finite mind are not just. All you're looking at is the, 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 the smallness of your own life and what you think you deserve, that I am the God of the universe. And this world is not just. Uh, the, the beauty of the book of Job is not only did he suffer these things, but on the other side of those things, there was restoration that came to him and fruitfulness that came to him. And then, how many of you guys have ever, I would highly recommend also the, the book of Ruth. Are you guys familiar with the story of uh, Naomi and Ruth? Naomi and her husband, they, they were in Judea. That's where they lived. There was a famine. Come on, that right there will cause you grief and sorrow, a famine. They had to leave their homeland to then move to Moab because they needed food. In Moab, she has two sons and they marry Moabite women. But what happens while she's there, her husband dies and her two sons die. Ah, talk about pain and loss and sorrow. Come on, Naomi. So Naomi says to her two daughters, this is like, if you really understand biblical culture and all this, basically go find your, go get lost in your Moabite culture. This is home for you. Find yourself some husbands, go live your life, get restored. I'm going to like basically go back to my homeland and die because there's no hope for me now. Nothing left for me. But then you find Ruth, who basically her loyalty and faithfulness says, I will not leave you, I'm going back with you. They go back to Naomi's homeland, 
It's a long story, you should read all of it, it's beautiful. Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, and from this line is the lineage of Jesus. But not only this, you actually find that Ruth and Naomi, that Naomi ends up with mothering Ruth and mothering and grandmothering uh, uh, Ruth's children. And it speaks of her grandchildren, just this place of extraordinary restoration. Can you say that our God is a God of restoration? And see, this is where we get stuck in grief, huh? Because for us, most of us, we're so looking at the here, the now, the immediacy, the moment, and what we are experiencing today. That's all we know, that's all we see, and that's all we feel. But do you understand that there is a God that knows the beginning from the end, and if you will continue to journey with him, if you will continue to posture yourself before him, there is a story of redemption out of every place of mourning and loss in your life. And here, I'm not promising you husbands, children, and wealth, but what I'm saying is there's an inward redemption. There's a place of strength. There's a place of restoration for your heart. There's a place of healing and wholeness. And although none of us would ever choose the path of suffering, that is not something we desire or choose. We can have the confidence as believers that even in the midst of it, there is a God that can supersede our suffering, that there is a God that can restore in the midst of our suffering, that he is not bound and limited to our loss and our grief, but there is something that supersedes the momentary affliction that we may experience. We're gonna move on from this point, but I, I just, I want to emphasize to you that in the word of God, it is not void of this topic of grief and suffering and loss. But what we find is, is the theme overwhelmingly of redemption. In John 14, 16, it says, and I will pray to the Father and he will give you another, the comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> Why does he refer to the Holy Spirit as the comforter? He knows that we need comfort. So when you're in a place of need and loss and brokenness, you do not need to despise that. What you need to do is call upon the Holy Spirit who is your comforter, knowing that Christ has made provision for us. Is that extraordinary that he's made provision for you when you need comfort? That you do not need to despise the fact that you need comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So do you hear this language here? He's exhorting us saying, you will grieve we're gonna grieve when there's death. And, and I'm, just not, I'm not talking about just physical death, the finality of a, a physical death of a loved one, the death of things in our life, the loss of things in our life. Grief is a normal response. But he goes on to exhort us that we would not grieve as those without hope. But we grieve differently because even in the midst of grief that there is a hope. And he's speaking of the resurrection that comes, that we live in eternity in heaven with, with God. And this is what's beautiful here is I wanna take us to uh, Psalm 23. 
you guys are probably, most of you are probably familiar with Psalm 23. But I feel like sometimes we're overly familiar and we forget some of the most simple, profound things. In Psalm 23, it is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So do you hear all of this language of he leads me? He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me. It's, it, it, it's his leadership that he's leading us. And then in verse four, it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. What does it say next? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see the beautiful imagery here of a shepherd who leads us and guides us and does not forsake us? He, he causes our soul to lie down in green pastures. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, the, the shepherd of our soul. But do you see right here in the middle of it where the language is, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He's basically saying that this is the, the fruit and the reward of those who walk with me, but it's not without walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That there will be seasons that we walk through dark valleys. But do you hear the language in this that it says, yea, though I walk through? It doesn't say, yea, though I walk into the valley and I never come out. He uses this language of walking through that somehow the dark valley in your life is actually a hallway or a passageway that you will come through. And I want to say to you, friends, that when you are in a dark place, if you will begin to speak over yourself, declare over yourself, and proclaim over yourself that you will come through those dark places, that it is not your destination to die in the valley of the shadow of death. It is not your destination to die in depression and loss, but he will walk you through those dark places. And the beauty of the fact that he walks us through, and then it goes on to say, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Can I ask you a question? How much in our emotional life would change if we would begin in the midst of things to declare you are with me? You are with me. Oftentimes, our greatest pain over our life is feeling like we're alone and that God has abandoned and forsaken and forgotten me and that somehow maybe God has forsaken me because there's something wrong and so now God's left me on my own. But when you are in your darkest places, if you'll begin to declare over your life, you are with me. You are with me in this valley. I will not fear for you are with me. You know what's beautiful about this language is the psalmist is speaking about God in this way. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name is sake. Then in verse four it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. Do you hear the language change? He doesn't say for he. He goes from speaking about God to a place of speaking directly to him for you are with me. 
And there's something that shifts in the language of this verse of speaking and declaring about God to the place of the knowing that he is with me. It becomes more personal. It becomes more intimate. We actually find this in the book of Job where it says, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Meaning we go from a place of almost he's impersonal and he's afar off. But then in the place of suffering, all of a sudden, we come to know him more intimately and personally. There's a place where in our suffering, when we walk with him, when we call upon him in our place of pain, that there's something that shifts in our relationship where even Job said, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Henry Nouwen says this, the dance of life finds its beginning in grief. Here, a completely new way of living is revealed. It is the way in which pain can be embraced, not out of a desire to suffer, but in the knowledge that something new will be born in our pain. And if we could even process our pain in this way, of understanding we do not desire it, but out of those places that we can't control, that we can't even prevent, the confidence that something new will be born out of that place. You know, I can remember when our son was sick and night after night, when he was sleeping in his room, I would always go in and basically kneel on his floor and just pray. (laughs) Most of my praying was just silent and weeping because I was just heartbroken. And I can remember, I oftentimes when I would pray for my son, it was more in the form of accusation to God. I'll let you in on pain and grief. (laughs) My accusation sounded something like, God, if you're not big enough to, my son had Lyme's disease because of a tick bite. If you're not big enough to prevent my son from getting bit by a tick, what are you capable of? Yikes, sorry, sorry. But you know what, part of the reason that I experience emotional breakthrough is I'm not afraid of being honest with God. Because you know what, my prayer began to change. I I was in that posture for a while of accusation of like, why, what's wrong with you? Like, if you can't do this, what can you do, please? But you know what, My, my prayer began to change. And in the midst of his sickness and all of our family struggling through that, my prayer began to be, God, even if my son is not healed, if you are with us, that is enough. If you are with us, you know my prayer, as much as I still prayed that he was healed and my son is healed, he's been healed for what, four years now? As much as I continued to pray that, my prayer became greater of through this, let my son know you. Through this, let my son experience you. If all of this suffering is only unto my son experiencing who you are, him encountering you, then it is worth it. I would never desire it, I would never ask for it, but it becomes invaluable and worth any amount of struggle or suffering when we gain the knowledge and the experience and the encounter with Christ. We see this example as far as walking through the valley and understanding that we're not remaining there, but it's, it's part of the journey that we're on, even in the language that Jesus, he himself, it was declared of him in Hebrews 12 too, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. 
It was not only unto the cross, but it was the joy that was set before him that he was able to journey through suffering and difficulty and betrayal because there was something on the other side of the cross, that there was something uh, of inheritance and restoration on the other side of the cross. And so for us as believers, that's the place that we have to come to is that it's not in the moment what we may be experiencing, but for the joy that is set before us, that there is something on the other side of suffering and difficulty. And we see in this passage where it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. One of the greatest fears for us as individuals is that harm will come to us and that we will not make it to the other side. We have such fear of like, what will happen to my family? What will happen to my house? What will happen to my children? We live in that fear and we dread it and we actually convince ourselves if that happened or if this happens, I won't make it through. We, we almost convince ourselves of that place. There's actually an article, it's called Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. It's by Bidwell Smith. And in the article it says, <clears throat> grief and anxiety are inextricably linked We experience anxiety after a loss because losing someone we love thrusts us into a vulnerable place. It changes our day-to-day lives. It forces us to confront our mortality and face these fundamental human truths about lives' unpredictability, causing fear and anxiety to surface in profound ways. I think the language of the psalmist here where it says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When you think about it, that oftentimes in the place, and this is why I love this article about grief being uh, one of this, I'm sorry, uh, anxiety being one of the stages of grief is because oftentimes for us as individuals is it's not even our, our pain that is crippling to us, it's our fear of the pain that is crippling to us. It's our fear of what will be the outcome, what will become of me, Will I come to the other side? So even for those that struggle with depression, sometimes it's not even depression itself that becomes crippling. It's the fear of the outcome. The fear of, will I make it through to the other side? And this is beautiful in in, in the Psalms where he says, I will fear no evil, meaning you do not have to fear hardship and difficulty. You do not need to fear challenges and loss and grief. You don't even have to fear pain because he is with you. And so we don't need to live a life of seeking to avoid pain and and a fear of pain. We need to have the confidence of knowing as long as he is with us, we will make it to the other side. You know what's amazing about this? Is that sometimes, as I'm sharing this passage, you might be thinking, well, there is no guarantee. Like the other side doesn't mean like Job, everything gets restored. The other side, like Naomi, doesn't mean all of this restoration. Like I don't have a guarantee, like, like my friend, right? My friend died of cancer. The other side for her was not restoration in this life, but you wanna know what the other side for her was? is eternity in heaven with Jesus. And so the beautiful thing about this is that even when Jesus said the joy that was set before him, it it is how he endured the cross, that we have to understand as individuals, our hope is anchored in something far greater than the outcomes of this world. Our hope is anchored in an eternity with Christ Jesus. 
And the beautiful thing is that regardless of what may happen in this life, that there is, there is a life that is beyond and this life is only but a vapor. I actually just wanna give us a couple of practicals <clears throat> in closing out here. First and foremost, <clears throat> I'm gonna give us kind of our, our, I think it's five different practicals as far as processing grief. And I'm gonna start with two that are just very tangible action points. First and foremost, it's important that we accept support rather than grieving alone. That if you have areas in your life that you are suffering the loss of something, I don't care if you think it's foolish. I don't, think, I don't care if you think that you should be minimizing it and it shouldn't, you know, oftentimes people do that is kind of like, this shouldn't be affecting me as much. Or we almost judge ourselves and we, and we think others are gonna judge us of like, well, if I tell somebody that this has become a crippling place of sorrow, someone's gonna judge me of that shouldn't be. This is what I'm gonna say to you is whatever the area of grief is in your life, it's important that you allow others into that place and that you dialogue about it and that you do not grieve alone. <clears throat> Two, talking about grief is an essential part of grieving. You know, I can remember um, when I had my miscarriage, whenever my phone, like text messages or, or calls would come through, I remember, you know, because you're grieving. Let's, let's be honest, you have a period of grieving. I can remember like certain phone calls that when they'd come by, I'm like, I just don't want to talk. Like that would be my, my initial, and I probably could have stayed there a while, kind of like, I don't want to talk. Like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to have to recount the story. I don't want to have to. And I can remember there was a few individuals just because of their location around the globe and different things. I thought, I got to pick up. Like, I can't not pick up. And as much as I dreaded the talking part of it, I can tell you something. Every single time I got off the phone, I'm not saying my pain went away. I'm not saying I felt like miraculously better, but there is something about other people bearing our burdens with us. There's something about not isolating. And oftentimes in grief, one of the strategies of the enemy is to cause us to isolate. And to some degree, it even compounds the grief that we're experiencing. Number three, um, in Job 1.20, it says, um, <clears throat> and this, Job got up, and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This is what I want to encourage you, that even in our posture of grief, that we, we praise God, not necessarily because of what's happening or for what's happening, because that can be hard in the moment. It's usually afterwards that we're able to. But begin just to posture yourself to praise and exalt God, because it's in that place that he's able to fill us and to meet us. So find a posture of praise. Rest in the confidence, Psalm um, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. The fact that God promises that he is near to you when you're brokenhearted. Oftentimes we're such in a place of isolation and fear that we almost cut ourselves off from even experiencing the love of God, but it says that he is near to the brokenhearted. Psalms 30 verse five says, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping 
may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. And when I say rest in this confidence, it's that you can't bring yourself there, but you can meditate upon scripture of knowing there is a day when your weeping will cease. There is a day when this, this grieving process will lighten its load and that there will be another day of rejoicing. And th this is the final point that I wanna say, is exercise redirecting your hope. Meaning, oftentimes, you guys are familiar with the passage of scripture that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. That oftentimes when we're placing our hope and our expectation in one thing or in one outcome, that is the place that our heart becomes sick is because that was our expectation. Our hope was in that. But do you wanna know part of my, even praying for my son is I began to shift what is my hope and my expectation. My hope and my expectation is that he encounter you, Christ. And if he gains Christ, any amount of struggle or suffering will be worth it with the gaining of Christ. And so this is what I wanna say, in the midst of grieving, intentionally practice the exercise of anchoring your hope in Christ. That your hope is not in a particular outcome or circumstance, but your hope is in a man and his name is Jesus. I wanna take this time to pray for our community. Obviously there are probably many of us in this place that may have current areas of loss or even grief that we're struggling with. But can I just um, propose to you that for some of us, we may not have something at the forefront of our mind like a recent death or a recent job loss or a relationship broken. It, there might not be anything on the forefront. But for some of us, we actually carry certain aspects and dimensions of grief with us. Grief that we haven't fully processed, or maybe to some degree, for some of us, there's grief and we've kind of settled in the place of depression and despondency and despair. Like that's kind of where we've uh, parked our car and now we live in a certain measure of discouragement and even lack of expectation and hope. And so I wanna encourage us this morning that even if we don't have a current thing that we're looking at as we're grieving over actively, I know for me that there's certain um, ongoing things that I have to, I, I, I continually have to grieve the changing of relationships. When you pastor in a transient church like this, you give, you invest, you love, you labor, you're, you're, you're basically working to build a family and then you're constantly saying goodbye to your family. <laughs> I mean, that is a constant state of, if I don't keep my heart tender, it's a place where I can become discouraged and despair and think, I don't think I wanna do this anymore, thank you very much. But that's not healthy for me to just settle in that place or even give up because of grieving certain things. And so I wanna encourage us this morning as we take a few minutes to pray, I want to encourage us that we would come into the place of dialoguing with God about the areas of grief in our heart and the areas of loss, but also in relationship with others, that we would open ourselves up to others to, to dialogue and share the places that we have experienced disappointment in our expectations, loss of things that are precious to us, and that those wouldn't be um, cut off and concealed from sharing with others, but, that we, but we would come to a place of being able to dialogue and share those places of grief with others. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this community of people. God, I thank you, Lord, as we have been, um, even throughout these weeks, discussing managing our emotions. God, we 
recognize, Father, that grief is a very real emotion, Lord, that all of us come into count, encounter with on a continual basis in, in, in various ways of loss. And God, we come before you this morning and God, we say, Lord, we don't want to be those that live with a heart that is sick in despair and in depression because our hope has been deferred. But God, we wanna be those that continually anchor our hope in Christ Jesus. That even as we see the example of Jesus, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That he endured the greatest suffering, the greatest betrayal, the greatest pain that anyone could ever know. But he knew there was something on the other side of it. So God, we ask, Lord, that um, even throughout this week, Lord, that we would take time to meditate even on Psalm 23. Lord, that we would take time to remind ourselves that we have a good shepherd who leads us and guides us. Lord, that we would remember that for some of us, Lord, the places that we grieve and the places that we feel as though we're in a dark valley, Lord, that that is not our destination, but it truly is just a passageway. It's a, it's a hallway to even another place. God, we thank you, Father, that even through pain, Lord, that it can be an open door to a, a greater encounter with you, to know you more personally and more intimately. God, I lift up every person under the sound of my voice, Lord, that in their pain, they have isolated from you. That in their pain, they have, instead of coming before you and trusting that you are a good father and that you will carry them through, Lord, that they have not only accused you, but Lord, that they have been angry at you and then they've cut themselves off from experiencing your love and presence. God, we thank you, Father, that it's only in your presence that we are made whole. And God, we ask, Lord, that as a community, that we would be those, Lord, that um, grieve with one another, that when one person grieves, God, that we would grieve with them. Lord, even as it's said, Lord, that in the West, Lord, that as a culture, that we do not grieve well, that we don't even understand what it is to grieve. We just wanna dismiss it and return back to business as usual and a life of strength. And God, we ask, Lord, that any place that because we've neglected our heart, we've neglected our emotions, Lord, we've even neglected our pain, that in some ways, Lord, we're living cut off emotionally and even disengaged from you. God, we ask, Lord, that even through this series, God, that we would live more emotionally connected to you as our source, as our healer, that you're not a God who despises our pain, but that you are acquainted with our grief. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. Amen.